0: Welcome to InXS, Access All Areas. My name is B, and I will be co-hosting this series of podcasts with my excess nerd, Hayden Murdoch. We will be delving deep with you all to explore everything there is to know about this iconic band of brothers in excess, sharing music, tours, videos, albums and oh so much more.
1: Well, hello. Welcome to Inexcess, Access All Areas, episode 157, the podcast that aims to dive deep into all things great about this fundamentally fantastic band, Doing it with my compadre B, a bunch of listeners, a bunch of patrons, and hopefully some new people have jumped on board recently. Hello, B. I just said before you've never looked as lovely as you do today. Where have you been?
0: I have been to the races, the uh, Cops races. It's been rather exciting. Right.
1: Okay. Well, look, listeners, there are you know some very iconic sort of uh, uh horse races in the world where you know there's Kentucky Derby. You know you've got Royal Ascot, you've got the Melbourne Cup. But Coffs Harbour International Local Regional Cup today has just joined that pantheon of great races, B hasn't
0: it? It has, actually. It's been uh, amazing. The the red carpet was out. The sun was out shining. And if you want a great day out, then come to Coffs for the races. It's on all weekend. And
1: do you know we should say happy birthday to all the horses for August 1?
0: Do we? Why?
1: Yeah, well, that's the international day where horses have their birthday. Did you know that?
0: I didn't. No.
1: They have a universal birthday in racing oh. parlance, so there you go. But uh we're not a racing channel, um, although we do get a bit racy sometimes. We do. Uh- we are in excess access all areas. We've just come off a pretty revealing and 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 deep dive podcast with Nui Takao, who we would like to again say thank you for coming on last week. And, yes, and opening up. And uh, boy, has our listenership uh, gone up on that particular episode in terms of uh, scope and probably double the rate of listeners at the same time. So uh, all about you, Nui, and a great interview you did. And thank you for providing uh, that information and uh, coming onto our forum to share.
0: Yes, it was lovely. Thank you. And um, I must say, thank you to all the listeners that enjoyed it and text us. Um, Yeah, lovely sentiments. Everyone still loves our Michael, don't they? They do. They do.
1: They do. We have a, I guess, another feature interview today, and we probably haven't coined this, but we feel like it's a bit like Michael month at the moment. We are in that little period of 1997 where, you know, obviously Michael tragically lost his life. So our format to this show is a little bit different um, to normal weeks and a bit similar to last week. we are wanting to sort of get people on who knew Michael particularly well, uh, were around him at that particular time. We have on today and for next week a two-parter that we're so excited to chat to, who's somebody we've been chasing for over a year now, uh, has chosen to come on and, and share his uh, friendship with Michael. And then really is what, uh, well, the person who was really fundamentally his best friend. And that's Greg Pirano, who's coming on today. Uh, also want to thank Richard Simpkin coming on today as a bit of a chaperone and ally to, to Greg. We had the pleasure last year, of going up to uh Bond-Nye and having a little bit of a 25th anniversary wake remembrance with both Greg and Richard.
0: So it was nice to meet the, uh, the two of them together as well. Yeah, this is going to be quite a special episode. It's a bit up and down with happiness and a little bit of sorrow and a good insight into the music industry as well yeah. i thought
1: yeah mm. and i think look hopefully uh when we hear from greg today we'll sort of like we try and do is peel the curtains back and, and get to know you know our our favorite band members uh and our favorite band by you know getting a first and direct account inside and uh i think that uh you know greg is like many he continues uh, uh like many others who have just shared what a great guy michael was and uh, what an important figure he was in Greg's life and many others. So, uh, as I said, uh, all the bells and whistles of our normal formats are a little bit different because we think that we'd like to give emphasis on the guest uh, again, particularly the nature of and the tone. So, uh, we're going to do a big, big welcome to our special guests guests today, Greg Pirano and ably joined by Richard Simkin. Welcome to the podcast, guys.
2: Hey, this is Tim Ferriss. Big shout out to Hayden and B. Also, want to say hello to all the listeners and NXS fans. Thanks for listening. I love you, Hayden and B. You're doing a great job. Keep it up.
0: And now it's time for Topic of the Week.
1: Well, we're actually joined today, very, very luckily, by a former guest of the show and also a very brand new guest to the show, uh, Richard Simpkins and Greg Perrano, who obviously a lot of our listeners know uh, through the journey. We've spoken about at length and things. Uh, Welcome aboard, guys. Hello. Thanks for having us. (laughs)
2: I'm
1: going to define a friend. I've gone to the uh, Webster's Dictionary here and it says, a person attached to another by feelings of affection, assistance, or personal regard. In the world of a lot of uh, friendship inserters, Greg, I will bow to you and say that you and Michael were truly friends in the true
2: definition of the word. Look, that's that's a definition in a dictionary. I would say, you know, what, what makes people true friends is the small things that they connect with and then the big things that they connect through, the, you know, similar passions and loves. One of the most important things to me to connect with someone is that they have an absurd sense of humor, which may seem... That might not seem important to a lot of people, but if people do have an absurd sense of humor, which I have, I tend to connect with them because it means that they can be very lighthearted and uh, entertained by the absurd rather than focusing on the everyday. And Michael definitely did have a good sense of the absurd.
3: A lot of people, as you know, like you and I, all three of us are on Facebook and social media and you know, every time a picture pops up of Michael, it's mostly girls going, oh my God, look how hot he is and everything else that they write about. And, and then even when I see interviews on TV with with people that knew Michael or worked with him, they they don't always talk about Michael's sense of humor and, and how he loved to laugh and, and be silly, you know? Um, and I think that's, that's a good thing we've got Greg today because um, there's lots of silly things that well, lots of things that Michael found funny and silly and not only was he a great storyteller.
2: I was going not necessarily silly or it's more to do with taking the everyday and turning it upside down so that it becomes a, a little more accessible to you. You're not a pedantic about light. You know, you see absurdities in all the little things around you. I'm very
1: keen to drill down on that notion because in my little bit of research I did, I think you guys, uh, particularly Michael and yourself, shared a love of Monty Python. And was there a hiking experience that you and Michael did up at the Blue Mountains where
2: you decided to name some interesting flowers? That's one of the incidents that's online. I mean, people have already read about that. But I found when I went and stayed in Paris with Michael, it was the best I'd ever seen him ever. Not so much attention focused on him. You know, Paris is always full of big stars, and the French treat people quite differently. Michael was at the time seeing Helena. Um, she had like supermodel friends, of course. We ran into some friends of mine, Andy and Jody, and they'd got married and would do a backpacking tour of France. And Mike said, Look, come out to dinner, and then we're going to go to this party. And Andrew, Turned up dressed like a Frenchman, with a striped shirt, there. And immediately it was a, it was immediately it was quite a comical situation. And we had our pizza, and then all the women said, "Right, we have to do our makeup before we go to this party." So they all put lipstick on, and Andy went, "Well, we better do ours." So we all, Mike, Andy, and I oh, put nice. lipstick <laughs> on as well. And we're walking down the street and the women have kind of, sort of removed themselves from us. And we're carrying along like, <laughs> like three very camp, Australian, <laughs> Fantastic! And we see them, let's catch the train. And we sat in the back of the carriage and you sat on Mike's lap and Mike and I had this like imaginary bitch fight about know, you're always flirting with other men and (laughs) you've got lipstick on and eyeliner. (laughs)
1: The
2: point is that he was completely open to doing that. Another facet of his character, apart from that absurdity, is that Andy and Jody had very little money. They're touring, they're staying in hostels. At the party that night, Michael said to them, hey, Where are you guys going next? And he said, Oh, we really want to go and stay in the country. And Mike said, Oh, well, you can go and stay in my house in the south of France. And he came up to me and said, Is he serious? And I said, Yeah, that's that's fine. And so the next day, not only did he give him the keys to the house, he gave him the keys, his four-wheel drive, Mercedes-Benz. And, you know, it was a beautiful big chateau. So they went from staying in, you know, hostels to staying in this beautiful house, and then Andy rang up and I said, how is it down there? And he said, oh, we're having roast artichoke and drinking. <laughs> they were there for 10 days and Michael called up and said, look, I'm coming down. And they went, okay, well, we'll be gone tomorrow. And he went, no, I, don't, I actually would really like some company while I'm down there. So could you stay and keep me company for another week? And they did. It took them to every beautiful restaurant. All Andy had to do was drive them home. At night, because Michael would like to indulge, but but then Andy said one night they all took ecstasy. An hour's drive took them five <laughs> hours. <laughs> deep in the in the passenger seat, and just as it got light, Jody went. I think this is where the house is, and they drove down, drove through the gates, of the park and parked. And Mike woke woke up and went. Oh, we're well, yeah. here! <laughs> but that was the sort of person that says a lot about his character. That he would extend his hand like that to people. It wasn't like he wasn't trying to make them make him feel good. He was trying. He he wasn't. And that was nothing to do with what he was doing. He just thought, "Hey, I've got this big house. Here's these people on their honeymoon. They can go and stay there because I'm not there at the moment." You know? Yeah, he wanted to share what he had very much so that was that was a sort of person he is
3: Woo! 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 Woo!
2: Woo! Woo! About 10 years ago I met a woman and she said to me, look, she went to see NXS when she was 17 with all her friends and she had a very bad skin problem at the time. And her friends are very attractive and Michael came up and talked to them and she went, oh, obviously he's gonna try and seduce one of my friends. And he said to her, do you want to go and sit on the beach? And she went, yeah, okay, you know, it's a bit strange. And he sat there for about four hours and told her that her skin would clear up. He said, look at me, I had bad skin. He said, your skin's gonna clear up. You're gonna be okay. This is a really short period of your life. You'll be fine. In four years time, you'll forget about the people who've been mean to you. And she said that seemed like a normal thing for him to do, but to her, it completely changed her life and put her in a completely different situation so the other things that that you know were to me were quite important about him because that was the sort of person he was you know the, corner, with the black like
1: How did you first meet, uh, Greek? Obviously, you were very heavily involved, I guess, in the music scene in the early 80s. How did that initial meeting come about and what sort of connected
2: you guys in those early days? In excess, were huge fans of Hunters and Collectors. And when we first came up to play in Sydney, these guys kept turning up, but one of them kept coming right down the front of the crowd and just staring at the band, like, really intensely. And I said to someone after a couple of nights, oh, there's clothes. And they said, oh, they're just banned in excess and that's Michael Hutchins. They came down to Sydney and we played at a place called the Jump Club. And he said to the manager, I'd I'd like to meet that guy. And so we met and he was with Michelle Bennett at the time, but he was still seeing someone in Sydney. I ended up having an affair with Michelle. So for a period of time, we intensely disliked each other. Well, I don't know, (laughs) <laughs> because she ended up going back to him and it broke my heart. But Aww. but I have to say that when the talking to a stranger film clip was on countdown, the phone rang. He knew my phone, I picked it up and it was him. And I said, hello. And he said, hi. And I said, what do you want? Yes, <laughs> As I, did, uh, um, you know, I got your number from Michelle and, I was just wondering if you could tell us who the director of that film. <laughs> 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 yeah, okay, I get his number and I gave him the number and and when I hung up, I went, "You have to give him kudos for that." And it took him a lot of guts to to do that and call me up. And of course, they went and used Richard to do their film clips. But then, when I'd kind of got over my my relationship and jealousy and we became very good friends, you know. We had a lot in common and we enjoyed each other's company. It was just an interesting way to go about becoming friends with someone, you know.
0: Very, yeah, through Michelle. (laughs)
2: Michael
1: had this innate ability to – You know, break a lot of hearts but the girls and sounds like friends or whatever they seem to forgive him and
0: kept hold of the relationships yeah
1: yeah and there's such a charm about himself that he was very hard to dislike it sounds you know like once you got to know him uh, and that's probably relates to both yourself Richard and and Greg because you you had that time to sort of get to know him on a different level than than most of us
2: thing about it was too is that he was just as happy sitting on the floor in his hotel room Talking all night to a girl and whoever else was there, as he would have been if he'd slept with them. It was more important to him to have some company a lot of the time. And you know, often there was, you know, the big friends of ours, and he'd be talking to someone who was really attractive. And I'd think, oh, maybe it's time for us to go. And he'd go, no, no, because. He was a raconteur and he also loved people. He liked to hear people's stories, he was interested in people. But of course, everyone outside that group of people thought that whatever woman was going back to his hotel room was obviously going to be sex. Yeah. And a friend of mine, Shayna, she was a really beautiful model. She was 18, she'd come down from the country. She ended up, she had this huge crush on Michael. She ended up, when he was staying at the Connaught she ended up back there like with the full intent of something happening, but she also got very drunk. And when she woke up, she was in his bed and he was asleep on the couch, fully clothed with a blanket over him and he'd put a blanket over her and, you know, he'd been the gentleman and she said, you know, once again, that was really important for her. And there was always something special about him because In a lot of circumstances, men would have taken advantage of it, but he would never have done that. That was just not in his nature to do that. Yeah. You know, I think think that was another important facet of his character, that, you know, he was a good person, like basically a very good person. And all the wild stories and everything else, I mean, half of them are what people, they come out of people's imaginations because, you know, it's like people, when I was in Hunters and Collectors, people, someone said to me once, oh, you must've got a lot of girls. And I think I said, do you really think that's why we play music? Do you really think that was the main drive behind what, that's just insulting. You know, it just, it makes you look really shallow and it makes you look like, you know, you don't have any substance, you know? What was a lot more important about Michael is that his music made a lot of people feel very good and they grew up with it and they related to him on that level. And I think it's very important that people know that he was a good person and was a decent person. That's, you know, that that to me was the most important thing. And he had, a, I mean, he had charisma and he had charm as well, but there was something about him. He was a very, always a really vulnerable character. I mean, you probably saw Mystify. And one of the huge statements in that film to me was when the Ferris brothers' dad said, He wasn't a happy chappy when he was young, Michael. He was always the happiest when he was with us because he did not seem to have much of a family life. No matter what happened to Michael, everything, he would have loved to have had a true family growing up. He would have liked to have had just normal parents and had a family. I mean, he's a guy, he never owned a dog. He never lived in one place for a long time. He sacrificed a lot of things that he probably would have loved to do for play music, but he was always a very vulnerable person and I don't think people realize that. And people think that once you're in a successful situation, you're ironclad, that he suffered a lot from insecurity, especially when people attacked him personally in the press or criticized his band through him. It really had a, a major effect on him. He was a very, very vulnerable person and he got into a whole lot of situations where that was probably the worst way for him to be.
0: Yeah, I would I would call him quite sensitive to his situations as well. Oh, very, very much. Very aware of his uh, surroundings and who he's speaking to. And
2: People have said to me a lot was, I, I just met him and he always remembered my name. Who I was. He wasn't shallow in that way, you know. And there was a story I think that I said in, you know, after after 20 years after he had died, was that, you know, he used to come and get up and sing batting vocals with my band at the Hope Town, which was sort of like a semi, what you'd call punk, post-punk sort of gig, you know, and a lot of pretty wild people. And there was a guy all charred Remains. Not obviously, not. It's real. A great
1: name. A great name.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the loud Uncan, in Soaring Hills. And he hated it in excess. And he had this hatred of Michael, like, you know, a totally unreasonable and pathological hatred of Michael. And Michael was up there and he's going, Hi, oh, you Wanker. And then after we had a break, I look out the window and he, those two are out there talking and I'm going, Oh, gosh. <laughs> anyway, we did another set. And then when I walked out afterwards, him and that guy sitting in the gutter sharing beers and just deep in conversation. And the next time I saw that guy, he said, I said to all my mates, if they ever say, say anything bad about Mike again? I'm gonna belt him. There <laughs> you go. If Michael was like that, it's like, yeah, they're actually gonna dislike me. You know me first. Spend some time of me, you know. It really relates to our current, the current situation and for some people's psychological problems and mental health problems. After he had his accident, if he drank or if he did anything else, it was really strange. I couldn't relate to him at all, but a friend of mine, Paul, used to live in Point Piper and had a great view of the harbour and he'd invite Michael around for dinner and of course we'd smoke some marijuana. And Michael became the person that I used to know. Really funny, really relaxed, really laid back. I mean, we seriously learned a dance that Susie Quattro had in her film clip. There was a glam rock clip and it's such a silly dance, but it was just hilarious because the keyboard player would come out from the keyboard and do it in the middle of the song as well. So we watched it over and over, the three of us, and learned the dance. Those are the best nights I ever had with him. That was when I saw him having the most fun. That's when I saw him completely in his element.
1: change that you felt and sensed, and, but a lot of people have said it, but I don't trust the inner sanctum like yourself more between post-accident and pre-accident. You saw that distinctive personality change, I guess.
2: I don't think it was as huge as everyone said. All it did was exacerbate something that was already there, which I think because of his childhood and because, you know, the observation that. Mr. Ferris made about him not being a happy chap and not having that family. The fact that when he was in LA, it, he told me that he hardly ever went out. He was in his room a lot of the time. And he felt like he was in an alien environment. He wasn't having the time that everyone thought he was having. Through that period of time, no one really understood what depression is. It's not getting sad because Something's not going right. It's it's something that overtakes you and you don't really know what it is, but you feel it. And I think that he was a vulnerable person. He, he rang me up once and they would just done a concert with 30,000 people. And it was four o'clock in the morning over there and he was just devastated and he was really upset. And I said, what's going on? And he went, I'm by myself, you know, and I've just played to all these people and he was a loner, but he could also be desperately lonely. So it was that it was a bit of a dichotomy, you know. He, he liked his own time being able to do what he wanted to do. But, you know, with, with my friends Jody and Andy, they said he was such incredible company and he hardly knew them, but they drove around the countryside and they went to these places to eat. They said he was just lovely company. And they were, of course, devastated when he died as well because he was – he was quite a unique character, you know, very, very unique character. And I think that the big problem with people think the same with Kurt Cobain. When people like him get put into the spotlight and they're constantly in the spotlight, seems to be, and especially in the Western world, it's a natural instinct of a lot of people to turn on those people because. You know, they've become, you know, the tall poppy Drunk, they've become very successful. So let's find some flaws in their personality. Let's start find some flaws in their character. Let's find some flaws in their behavior because that's what's going to spread stories about the person. You know, they're the stories that people become interested. They stop thinking about the fact that they're dealing with a human being. They don't look in the mirror and go, how, how would I react if someone treated me like that all the time? If people were looking to find a flaw in my personality and looking to find a flaw in my character. And people writing about you who you've never met in your life on the other side of the world, that has a huge personal effect on people. And and I totally believe the same thing did happen to Kirk Cobain. Michael never knew he was going to be in a big band. He joined a band when he was seventeen and they went and were a covers band playing in Perth and It went from there, so you go along with it, you know, and that seems to a lot of people to be the greatest thing in the world, but there's no protective system there for you that protects you from, you know, that negative feedback that you're going to receive. And if you're a person who's vulnerable and the sort of character that he was, then it's going to have a huge effect on you. And people don't care. People would say, I'd say, look, I've talked to Mike, he's not that happy. And they'd go, well, why should we care? He's usually successful. That means nothing. You can't buy a peace of mind, you know, and you can't buy, you can't rewrite your life. He had a fractured family. He never had that, you know, that childhood that a lot of us were lucky to have. The rest of the band realized that he was a huge part of what drew people into them, but they were very much a part of it as well. But you know, you're with this group of people all the time, so it's going to be problems. With, so you don't always have the support of that group of people, and then you have another group of people around you who relied solely on you financially. You, you, there's a big group of people who are making a huge amount of money out of out of your success. So that's who he was surrounded by in the last three or four years of his life by people who were actually needed him to keep working and need him because of of what it was generating. You know, if you're someone's manager, you exist off them. If you're someone's road crew, you exist off them. If you're someone's record company, you exist off them. So the people around you in, in that situation are not your friends. Uh, like your, your business company. Da-da-da, love
3: your hair. Let me I love your big house.
1: It's, your spare time. And I'm sick of it. it's a shit. in the sky. Yeah,
3: they-
0: the whole responsibility he felt on his shoulders. While you were talking, I was thinking about, there's this new documentary on Wham! at the moment, and and you you feel the pressure from George Michael. I didn't realise that they were only 16 when they met at school, or 12 even. And it's the same responsibility of, you know, you didn't know that fame would bring all of that and the vulnerability of um, a sensitive person being put into that spotlight.
2: No, you know, there's no education. There's nothing that can prepare you for that amount of attention at all. Although it may seem to a lot of people to be the ultimate dream to people, nothing can prepare you for a situation that's completely unreal most of the time. You know, you don't know who to trust. You know, people were desperate to be your friends, desperate to get close to you, and don't really know who they can trust, but they have a group of people around them who manage everything. But the problem with, to me, with musicians is that the very nature of how it's been since probably the late sixties is that the more controversial they are, the more publicity that you can generate from it. It's seen as the norm, you know, like the the cliche and the sex and drugs and rock and roll. And it is a cliche, but People who go down that path in normal life generally end up in a pretty awful situation because, you know, they end up with addictions or they end up in a pretty appalling situation. Because, but with these groups of people, have never really been taught to look after themselves. I mean, from the time you're 18, people are buying your air ticket, people are booking your hotels, people are hiring your cars. Wherever you go, everything is taken care of. You know, half the time you don't have to go out and buy your meal. It's not like, you know, when the rest of us go overseas, you sort of stay in a bed, sit and find a job. They're completely looked after from quite an early age and they don't really have to grow up. It should be a lot more of a pragmatic situation where you you actually learn to, as far as, as your behavior is concerned, We all know that the tabloids have always exploited situations because they're controversial. They're not interested if the person's a decent human being. They're not interested in um, if he has a stable relationship. They're interested in controversy. And if they can encourage it or find a little, you know, if they find those little chinks in people's armor, they go for it. Those musicians who become successful, there's another group of people that they help exist as well. You know, the journalists and the photographers and the paparazzi, you know, there's a whole lot of people who thrive off them and live off them and feed off them, but the bottom line is they don't care that much about them because they don't have to have that personal contact with them. And unfortunately that's the nature of the beast. Musicians are out there in a vulnerable situation, performing live to people. You know, as opposed to actors or who can who can actually at least move away from it all. But you know, if you, you're playing music, you half of your life is playing live and performing to people in a vulnerable situation and in a real situation. You know,
3: I think Kirk said it. Remember years ago, guys, after the kick it wound up, and I think Kirk said. Uh, when the tour finished and he came back to Sydney and he sat in his lounge room and he kind of waited for the applause and there was no applause there and he sat around and he was just by himself in his living room and he was like, well, oh, what do I do now? Where's the? Where's all the applause, you know? <laughs> I guess it would be an unusual thing, especially, you know, for the kick tour and stuff and even the Wembley gigs, being so big, being so popular, having millions of people all around the world see you and want to know you or even think they know you and then it finishes and you come home and there's just – As Kirk said, he was waiting for the applause. Well,
0: that's where their PR company should have uh, stepped up and made sure that Australia knew about Wembley. So don't get me on that one.
3: (laughs)
1: Back to sort of the positives of your friendship um, in a world where we didn't have mobiles or social media and things like that, you always seemed to find each other regularly. Um, how did how did you keep in contact with him? How did, how did he find you? I mean, it was just the old school home number or hotel numbers. How did you guys see, connect when you lived in different different parts of the world?
2: Yeah, it was just the home. That you'd just get a message on the answering machine and say, "Oh, I'm coming back next week and want to be under this name at this hotel." You know, he had my number and you would call up and at different times if something had happened to him. Like when he met Helene, he called me up straight away and he yeah. said, I to meet you had to meet her. And I went, yeah, well, I don't know what happened. He said, oh no, you're coming to France. And I went, yeah, that's all right for you to say, you know, I've got like $20 in my pocket. And he said to me, no, I've booked you a flight tomorrow night.
0: <laughs> uh, you come in, like it or not. <laughs>
2: no, no, I can do that. And he said, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> I flew to France and met Helena. And in in those situations, like in the South of France, it was a friend of Helena's and it was Helena and I, and we just did very normal stuff. Like went for drives, went up into the hills, you know, even in Paris, like he wasn't hanging out with all the superstars. The person who ran Helena's agency, it sort of adopted this street kid who'd become a good friend of Michael's. He played music as well. His friends were like living in squats and the party we all went to dressed up with makeup on was in a squat with like a tiny little record player. And there's, there's a Joni Mitchell song called Free Man in Paris. And it's actually, I think about a record company exec, but it, said, it says, you know, he was a free man in Paris. You know, no one hitting him up favors no one's future to decide, and it's about someone involved in the music industry. And when he was in Paris, he was, because he didn't have that pressure. He didn't have to perform for a while. He was with someone he loved. You know, she had quite a simple apartment in Paris, and no one really cared who he was, and he loved that. He loved walking. We were actually walking around the streets with a friend of Elena's from Denmark, and she was a well proportioned woman of, you know, you know, <laughs> but and I'm walking along and I said, well, all these boys on the other side of the street and I said, I think you'd be recognized. And Michael went, not man. It's her. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. And they were the boys. I heard them. They were all talking about, Oh, look at her. <laughs> and
1: you
2: could sort of go anywhere and, and feel relaxed and You know, be happy with the person that he was. Yeah, he was away from the pressure at that time. The French are completely different. They're not they just just go, hey, in excess and leave it at that. And he was the happiest I ever saw him ever in my in Paris because he'd reverted to being just like the teenage kid and it was all fascinating and it was like, wow, we were in Paris. I believe my I we went out dancing and We went to Bain Dish and Prince was there over in the corner with security and we were all dancing and Elaine said I don't know I would give anything to dance with Prince and Mike said oh let's go into Prince or dance with Elaine and so we went over. and, and- We'd been using this term, Jack the Lance <laughs> for dance.
1: <laughs> Go for a Jack the Lance. <laughs> Michael
2: walks up, to Prince, and says, the hug and kisses are like a Jack the Lance. <laughs> and the Prince is looking <laughs> at him like, what are you talking, what are you talking about? And then Michael and I walked up and I was just in hysterics. I thought That was just Michael like just being silly and, and, and funny, but it wasn't sort of like, wow, Prince, you know, but, Prince, of course, didn't understand what the heck he was saying, you know, that his partner wanted to dance (laughs) with him. But yeah, it was really good to see him in that that environment where he was totally comfortable again. I hadn't seen him like that quite for a long time, but I'd never seen him ever be as relaxed and happy as that. It's always really good to know that he had that period where there was times in the south of France where... People like Bono and Simon Le Bon were actually really good friends with him because they all lived down there and they lived down there to get away from people and they could all hang out and, you
0: know,
2: Mm. rope into the pool and do do silly things. And that was how they were. You know, they felt they were a group of people who understood each other and understood what they were sort of going through. So at the end of the day, Bono was actually very close to Michael, you know, because there's a public persona with Bono, but there's a private persona with Bono where he's actually, like his best friends are uh, his friends that he went to primary school with, you know, that they don't have a lot of money. They're not flash people, but his friends that he's had all his life and people who went to primary school, Mike's people like that were probably in excess. So it's pretty hard to kind of like plan in a group of people who were you Childhood friends and keep them as your childhood friends because they're not removed from what you were doing. And Bono was very lucky that he has a set of childhood friends who always put his feet on the ground, always, you know, keep him sane. He can always, and Bono in a, in a social environment in his own home is the one getting the drinks, doing the dishes, looking after everyone and taking care of anyone. And, everyone else is more important than him. You know, it's like when Michael came out here and people who'd lived with him and people who knew him when he had very little, he felt relaxed with those people because we'd got to know each other as people. It had become such a huge machine that he was a bit separated from that. Whereas Bono could always go back to Ireland and knew what the Irish are like, they always thought of, hey, you know, and disappear for a while, whereas, he didn't have anywhere to disappear. Once you get to that kind of level, it is pretty hard unless you've got that stable background, unless you can go back and hang out with the kids that you went to primary school with, you don't have that. Because let's face it, the, the kids you went to primary school with, if you, you were friends with them all your life, you're friends with them because you were knockabout mates when you were kids. Not for any other reason. There's no other reason why you would be friends of those people except they were true friends when you were when you were growing up. Or well, shared experiences, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, that's what I mean. He was friends with, with the Farris boys and that, that group of people. And they became a really successful band. So the friendships changed completely because you're with each other all the time. So, and it's pretty hard, you know, it's a hard sort of environment. So you don't have the someone someone those people to go away and hang out with
0: It's separate from the work life to you to the family life. Yeah. He had no one to go to. No. Just the hotel room.
2: Yeah. And that's
0: why he flew you over.
2: <laughs> yeah, because he just he just wanted people around who like my friend Paul, who was really no one really knew him. And at the end, he was really close to Michael. Mark. Michael Mark loved him. He'd cook him a, a roast dinner and he'd have him over at his house and just have normal conversations. And you could be silly and watch films. And, you know, you didn't have to be in the spotlight or all the time. You know, he didn't feel like he, he loved being away from that kind of attention. You know, it's something that, say, with that actor, they set out to be as successful as they can be and they go to school. And, but, when you 14-year-old kid singing or playing the drums or playing guitar, you don't expect for a minute that you're ever going to be in a band that is going to be known all around the world. It, it does, there's no kind of training for that. You know, there's no kind of training ground for it. And that's what I'm saying about people who are, who are musicians. They're encouraged to be irresponsible. They're encouraged to be kind of you know, to drink, they're encouraged to kind of be these wild characters because it, it supposedly makes them a lot more interesting. Come on,
0: it's quite sad, wasn't it really, that there he is entertaining thousands of people and then going back to his hotel room and feeling desperately lonely and calling people.
2: Yeah, because he, uh, and a huge thing with Michael is that he would have loved to have been, come out of an independent underground scene. He would have loved to have in excess to have been accepted, in a, you know, to have played that small, those small hotels and, and had that credibility that, you know, Nick Cave had and people like that. He would have loved to have to experience experienced that environment. It was always, I know it was always a regret with him. You know, he was always drawn to kind of um, alternative music because there was something about it that he understood, but he hadn't actually been part of. He loved Nirvana when they came along, you know, he thought Kurt Cobain was a phenomenal character, you know, and I remember when he died, Michael contacted me and said, that's such, it's so sad, you know. But he seemed to understand why it would actually happen so everyone kind of has this idea of what normal is everyone has this idea of have an idea of what families are and but that all falls apart when you when you get into the entertainment industry and especially in the music industry because you know there's this, there's these people who want to be part of try and get something from you or be part of it or, or that excitement, you know, you're not prepared for that, then it's a pretty dangerous situation, you know, and it's a pretty complex situation that you're not actually prepared. For. You know, there's no psychologist who can sit you down and go, okay, this is going to happen to you.
1: Wild life. Wild life. since we started this podcast, we feel like it's a jigsaw puzzle, putting everything together. You know, myself and B, we went around and we didn't know the band and all. And I know it relates probably to, to Richard a little bit. Everyone we interview and speak to have an affection for Michael and there's a loyalty that goes both ways. And uh, for those who haven't listened to the episodes we did with you, Richard, in our first season or first year, um, you happen to, as a young guy, uh, meet Michael. And um, I'm sure you've had some individual moments with him you know, some that reflect that loyalty or that memory or, you
3: know, he strikes me as someone who would know your mum's name. I'd always be excited when he called me Richard because a lot of the times he'd be like, hey, mate, or it was always mate, mate, mate. And then sometimes I would think, does he know my name? So like <laughs> I get something signed and he's about to sign it and I'd be like, can, can you sign it to my name? And then he'd be like, to Richard. I'm like, oh, okay, okay, I've got this. Yeah, I mean, my story is quite unique, as you know, like, I mean, me and Greg have the complete polar opposite stories here because Greg was his best friend. And, and there I was this, as you know, I've told the story on here before, this 16-year-old kid that loved In Excess and went down to the studios on my school holidays just hoping to get my kick record signed. And, you know, that was probably all I could ask for and all I really wanted. And then, I don't know, I just found Michael took me under his wing and just kind of took me in a little bit and just made me feel really comfortable. And then kind of always like looked out for me, you might say, like there's many stories where I was like at, a, you know, he, I got into some parties and, you know, people would be in the parties and try to kick me out. And then Michael would see what was going on. And he'd walk over and, you know, get into a heated discussion and basically say, you know, just stay with me type thing. And I'll look after you. So He was always looking after me and even at the ABC studios when they were rehearsing in the early nineties and, the security guard at ABC said I wasn't allowed to be in there. And Michael kind of heard about it and went up to the security guy and almost got into an argument saying, no, no, he's, he's staying here. He's at the studios. He's I've invited him in. And he was always kind of protecting me as, you know, I was just a kid. I was 16. Um, so I was just very lucky that my idol, you know, was, was Michael Hutchins. And like, I first met Greg at the studios, I'd be sitting outside, of course, on the cold marble floor, probably getting piles Uh, and Greg would be there um, coming in and out. And we're like, who's this guy always hanging out with Michael? And then we found out his name was Greg and he was Michael's best friend. And Greg was always nice to us. And the very first time I saw the French seven inch single of um, Simple Simon, you know, there's that rare cover one, Greg took it to the studios and he came over to me and he's like, hey, have you ever seen this? And I'm like, oh my God, what is it? And he's like, and you know, there was no internet in 1990. You couldn't just no. get up and Google. And I'd never seen this French single, you know, Simple yes. Simon and Greg had a copy. I think it was your friend's from memory, wasn't it? And you, mm-hmm. and you got Michael to sign it for your friend. It led me into this like six or seven year journey. I'm tracking down this rare single that, that Greg took to the studios once. Um, and I eventually found it and got Michael to sign it. But um, no, I just knew Greg as Michael's best friend. And that's just been a nice thing, I guess, with Greg and I over the years. We've kept in touch over the years and we've remained friends. We both have a, you might say, quirky sense of humour, Greg. Would you say that?
2: Yeah, my- <laughs> Richard has an absurd sense of humour as well. Yes, I know. <laughs> so- <laughs> This is Sheila from Birmingham, Alabama. This
0: is Susan from Cincinnati, Ohio. Hi, this is Maiti from Montreal, Canada. (laughs) This
2: is Suzanne from Los Angeles, California, and that's a wrap.
1: Well, B, that was uh, part one, pretty heavy stuff and and light at the same time. But um, look, thanks for Greg for uh, sharing part one with us today. It was definitely um, a reveal.
0: Yes, and we'll hear more from um, Greg and Richard next week.
1: Well, B, I I know on behalf of you and I and our patrons who we're going to welcome to this episode, even if it's towards the end, uh, I know all of them would have loved having Greg on today uh, as much as we did, and we thank him and Richard for his honesty and can't wait for part two. Uh, But our patrons, let's say hello and thank them too. I'd like to say hello to everybody outside on the highway. Let's all say hello to everybody outside. It's about 10,000 people at least.
0: What well, I'd like to welcome our honorary members. Tim Ferris, Nick Egan, Mark Opitz, Richard Simpkins, Cameron Adams, Mary Woods, Darren Jones and Paul Jolie. And our patrons, Carmen, Laurie, carrie Ann, Danielle, Sarah Markham, Sarah Camia, Dr. Jim, Katie, Lisa Mack, Anne-Marie, Susan P, Susan B, Foxy, Pedro, Mandy, Lisa, Yvonne, Amanda um, H, Amanda V, David, Tracy, Paul, Ella, Ryder, Tony, Erica, Abigail, Martin, Val, Jim, kelly jackie sheila shannon helen brett suzanne laurel barge genevieve shelby manny laurie jill laos heidi paula lisa angie nancy Juliet, scott anthea maria tracy vernon jamie diana stefan andrew georgie stephen keisha mark vernon lachlan mandy rachel nick Sula, amy diana paul p paul b alicia and our special mentions are to D, joe robbins johnny vink michael spriggs glenn davis paul boozy and jay finlandson and our special happy birthday to john farris thank you guys thank you so much for contributing and keeping this podcast going thank you Okay, this is going to be a bit of a short wrap, but um, I hope everyone's been able to get onto the website and um, put their votes in for the Max Q single. We're hoping that um, Bruce um, Butler will be putting the album out in a couple of years' time, maybe even a year's time, and a single might be coming off the back of it. So choose one of those singles because you might be one of those that might be able to push that through. At the moment, um, there's three at the top there. There's Concrete. Monday by Satellite and Ghost of the Year.
1: Excellent. Uh, now, our a Raffle that's almost coming to its conclusion, B, we've had a little bit of a good take up from people who were uh, in the running to pick up a, uh, I guess, the signed copy. I think it is the uh, the Kirk and Tim signed copy of Just Keep Walking off one of the original vinyl uh, singles, which for collectors around the world is a very rare item. And obviously, having signatures is even more rare. We've got the X Factor Tour uh, guest pass, uh, we've got the NXS stickers. We've got plectrums from uh, from B who's doing her best uh, model sh- uh, new prices ride uh, showings to me as I'm talking. Uh, so a great little collector's item that's coming to a conclusion, uh, and we will follow this up with more of an uh, altruistic one next, which will be the Ollie Olson Olsen uh, album giveaway with all the signatures. So we'll uh, update you more on that in the next week or two. But B, we thought we would go out today with a little bit of a tribute song for Greg, uh, a song that uh, he particularly loved uh, from Michael that still resonates with him today. And it's a song that um, I think it's really a different type of in excess song in the sense that... I remember hearing this song as a kid, not knowing it was in excess, um, even though I knew in excess songs. So uh, that's probably a credit to the versatility when you hear something that's completely different, but was actually the band you liked. So we're going to go ahead today, uh, the live version of To Look At You at uh, the US Festival. And uh, we pay tribute to uh, Greg, uh, who's paying tribute to his friend, Michael. Uh, it's a goodbye from me. and
0: It's a goodbye from B. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> And you've been listening to In Access, Access All Areas with Hayden and B.